from Connellsville to Cowdersport, Lock Haven to Erie, this is Lincoln Radio Journal. On this edition, there is a new speaker of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives as the chamber finally gets organized. Governor Josh Shapiro is getting set to make his first budget address. Our Capital Watch crew is here for a roundtable discussion. And the lust for power has trumped State House Democrat support for victims of child sexual abuse and sexual harassment. I'll have a town hall commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to Lincoln Radio Journal. We'll get to our Capitol Watch crew in just a couple of minutes, but first, news headlines from patownhall.com. U.S. Senator Robert P. Casey Jr. is back on the job after having successful prostate cancer surgery. Word is Casey will need no further treatment. Meanwhile, Pennsylvania's other U.S. Senator, John Fetterman, remains hospitalized for treatment of clinical depression. He was admitted to the hospital about two weeks ago, just days after having been released following testing because he felt lightheaded. Fetterman suffered a serious stroke last May, just days before the primary election. Democrat control of the U.S. Senate hinges on just one vote, so Fetterman's absence could have an impact on closely contested issues. Meanwhile, next year's race for U.S. Senator is beginning to take shape. With his current term ending, Senator Casey has not yet announced whether or not he will be seeking re-election in 2024. But David McCormick, who lost the 2022 U.S. Senate Republican primary to Dr. Mehmet Oz by less than 1,000 votes, is taking steps toward a new candidacy. According to the Associated Press, he recently spoke at a multi-day retreat sponsored by the National Republican Senatorial Committee, which is the GOP Senate campaign arm. McCormick also will be releasing a new book entitled Superpower in Peril in mid-March. And Linda Schlegel-Culver was sworn in this past week as Pennsylvania's newest state senator. A former state representative, Culver won a special election at the end of January to fill the unexpired term of Senator John Gordner, who resigned to take a job with the Senate Republican Caucus. Culver will represent a district that includes Columbia, Montour, Northumberland, and Snyder counties. The state Senate is now at full complement with 28 Republicans and 22 Democrats. Read about all things Pennsylvania at patownhall.com. After a tumultuous start, the Pennsylvania House of Representatives now has a new speaker, and with Democrats holding a slim one-seat majority, they're getting down to business. On the agenda, the start of the state budget process. Our Capital Watch crew is here to talk about it. David Taylor from the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association is joined by Rebecca Euler from the Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association and Stephen Bloom of the Commonwealth Foundation. David. And welcome once again to Capital Watch, where we keep an eye on what's happening under the Capitol Dome in Harrisburg for you. I'm your host, David Taylor, president and CEO of the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association. With me in the studio, your Capital Watch all-stars, Rebecca Euler, president and CEO of the Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association. Rebecca? Great to be here, David. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rebecca. And Steve Bloom, vice president of Pennsylvania's free market think tank, the Commonwealth Foundation. Delighted to be here, David. Well, it's always 
a pleasure to be with my wonderful friends. And boy, the hits just keep on coming in Harrisburg. The fall election for control of the 203-seat Pennsylvania House of Representatives landed at 102 Democrats and 101 Republicans. So because of uh, vacancies, people moving to uh, other offices and whatnot, that there wasn't clear control. There was uh, an interim uh, sort of speaker, but now all those things have settled out. The Democrats have 102 members, and they have taken control of the chamber. And that state representative, Joanna McClinton of Philadelphia, is now the speaker of the House. And so, what we see is since January 3rd, which is typically when the House starts its business for the for the new session, uh, we we've had a full two months, almost to the day. Of utter paralysis yes. in, in the state house. So the state senate was up and functioning right away after after January 3rd like they normally would be. Uh, the new governor, of course, building his administration and, and preparing to appoint cabinet officials and all those things that a new governor does. That was all going on. But meanwhile, for two solid months, the house sat there spinning its wheels with the, the, the Democratic leadership claiming that they had a majority when, in fact— uh, because of, as you mentioned, some a death and some other moves that, that happened with, with folks uh, taking other positions, they were actually in the minority yes. numerically for, for some time. They, they've been wrangling through that, trying to get that uh, straightened out. But uh, finally, it came to the conclusion this, this week that the Democrats do, in fact, now have a Speaker of the House who is not a compromised speaker, but the one that the Democrats really want. Yes, the, the actual uh, Democrat leader. The former, interim, uh, the former Speaker, who wasn't an interim Speaker, but he... He made himself a temporary speaker, essentially, and resigned yes. voluntarily. Uh, the election was held between a Republican and Democrat, and the Democrat won the speakership. So uh, now, fair and square, at least, there there is clarity in the House chamber. But what this means is now that the Democrats, for the first time in 12 years, are in the majority, they're going to attempt to pursue a, a Democratic agenda, which mm-hmm. is very different, of course, than what the House, under GOP control, had been trying to pursue for the last 12 years. And... Uh, it remains to be seen how this is going to play out with the Senate still under firm Republican control with a new governor who is really uh, at this point, uh, no one exactly knows how he's going to govern and in particular how he's going to negotiate and attempt to get his policy agenda enacted uh, in the in the House and the Senate. Uh, we don't really know what to expect, but we can expect that the Democrats in the House are going to try to support their governor, but there's going to be pressure on them from the left branch of their party, of course, to do some things that even Governor Shapiro is not going to like. So it'll be an interesting uh, process to watch over the coming weeks and months. But it's all culminating toward already, you know, it's early in the year, but it's all culminating already toward uh, Governor Shapiro's first budget, which is going to be due right. in June. Just, yeah, just days, just days away from the governor's budget address, which of course is the opening salvo of the, you know, of the the general fund budget uh, debate for the coming fiscal year. I think it is still going to be very interesting to watch because, like Steve said, I mean, we do have a clear majority now. Um, we're moving forward as as we always do, but um, to the point of 
you know, paralysis at the beginning of the year, I wonder how much of that is really going to change as we move forward, because it's a one vote majority. Yes. One vote makes the difference between, you know, getting a bill passed or not getting a bill passed, depending on, you know, the makeup of coalitions or, you know, who supports what particular um, issue, what particular bill. But it may on some days come down to who shows up for work that day. I mean, Uh literally comes down to if someone calls in sick. Um, so it's it's not it's never going to be, you know, really, oh, we know how this vote is going to go today because uh, we know we have a majority. It's never going to be that easy this year. Yeah. So that one vote majority is not enough to 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 lead to that stability most most of the time. So one of the things, Rebecca, and you, you make a good point, but I think the the, the Democratic um staff who are, as, as the Republicans are, who understand the inner workings of, of how the House functions, uh, in the rules that were adopted this week, they actually included the ability to vote remotely for the members. So they can leave essentially a proxy with their leadership. So even if they aren't at the office, their vote can still count as part of a, a likely Democratic majority. But your point is completely valid in terms of, they again, you can have health issues that arise where they, they literally have to give up their seat there's always the possibility of a death. You don't want to talk about that, but it's a, it's a reality. It happens probably in every session. There's one or two members that pass away just of natural causes and whatnot. And then the, the, um, the regular process of many times current sitting legislators decide to run for some higher office and, and mm-hmm. leave. So there will be some changes from time to time. And it's entirely possible, like you said, Rebecca, that that the majority will shift back and forth over these next two years. And, of course, in addition, you have uh, the inevitability of scandal and uh, an indictment and resignation. Um, And even now, it's already brewing that um, one Democrat lawmaker from Delaware County, um, his name is splashed across the front page of Pennsylvania's newspapers that he uh, reportedly sexually harassed. Um, a lobbyist. And so there's now going to be pressure on Speaker McClinton to, um, you know, to have that lawmaker uh, punished in some way and that the uh, the lobbyist was with a with a, a union that that union is calling for the, the, the uh, lawmaker to resign. So, again, that would shave things down to the narrowest of margins one more time for every single member who either isn't there, isn't able to serve or, you know, goes over to the other side, um, you know, it is it is going to be quite a Donnybrook every single day the legislature is in session. There's the, the fact that to get, you know, it's the one-point margin, and it, it may be easy for either party to hang together when it comes to procedural votes. Mm-hmm. That's always been a big thing is, you know, each party caucus and the leadership is like, you've got to be with us on, on any sort of procedural votes. Mm-hmm. But when, when now when that bills can start to be introduced in the House and start moving because they've finally got got rules and they're able to operate, uh, you're going to see some issues where certain Democratic members, especially those in some of the districts that have drifted toward a more conservative constituency over the years, uh, there's going to be Democrats who don't want to vote for some of the things that the Democratic leadership is going to run. Mm-hmm. It's going to be very hard for them to get 102 votes for some of the things that I know will be on the top of the list of the, the Democratic leadership agenda. Yeah. Every single vote will count. The tradition is you don't bring something up for a vote unless you know you have the the member votes to actually win the day. Will the the Democrat leadership in the state house 
in um, in in succumbing to the pressure from the progressives, will they force votes where where they where they they put it on the board, but they don't win the day just to just to smoke out whichever you know moderate or less liberal Democrats don't want to vote for that particular item. It's going to be a test of of leadership. The Democrats have not had the majority in 12 years, and so they're not used to being in that role of having to make those very difficult strategic decisions about how to advance the legislative agenda they want to achieve, what's realistic and what's not, and are they going to be able to keep that that very, very narrow one-point margin intact for the substantive legislation that they try to run. Yeah. Well, and sometimes it's going to take uh, compromise on the part of, um, you know, some of the leaders um, in order to get those things done. And are they going to be able to compromise some of those uh, more progressive positions? So that will be interesting to watch, too. Of course, also that, um, you know, creates an even larger role potentially for Governor Shapiro to be the the broker of those kinds of legislative compromises to uh, to craft something that will pass the House, meet with the approval of the Senate that he is still willing to sign. And every indication is that Governor Shapiro is going to be much more hands-on than, than our last two governors in Pennsylvania. It's, it's been quite a while since our Commonwealth has had a, a, a governor that, that likes to get into the political fray and knows his or her way around the political right. fray. Right. Governor Shapiro does. Yes. And, and I think his role could be that of, of essentially a mediator or moderator as between the Democratic-controlled House and the Republican-controlled Senate to work out a compromise of, of a legislative agenda that actually both can live with and that he as governor can live with. And, you know, that's... It remains to be seen, but there's some promise there uh, for those of us on the political side of the, of the political spectrum that think there's some things we can do in Pennsylvania that would be helpful that, that might not be agreed upon by, by the Democrats in the House. Um, Governor Shapiro has an opportunity to kind of walk that middle ground and really establish himself as a strong leader in Pennsylvania. You're listening to Capital Watch. I'm your host, David Taylor from Pennsylvania Manufacturers. With me, Steve Bloom from Commonwealth Foundation and Rebecca Euler from the Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association. So, you know, looking forward to the uh, governor's imminent budget address. I was actually invited by the governor to attend the uh, budget address as his guest, and and, uh, I'll be having lunch at the residence afterwards. And again, this is a tremendously gracious gesture on the part of Governor Shapiro. I appreciate it very much. And, um, you know, again, I'm taking this as a very hopeful sign that that uh, that the governor really does want to engage in all of the stakeholders um, and in that way to be a, a, a clear contrast with his predecessor. In fact, Steve, you were, th- you were talking about, you know, previous governors being, um, you know, actively involved in those kinds of negotiations. I think Ed Rendell, maybe even first term Ed Rendell, was probably the last governor who you could say really engaged in the process that way. Exactly. And I think we're going to learn a lot over, the, over this coming week with the governor giving his address to the General Assembly on Tuesday in accordance with tradition. The members of the Senate will come into the House chamber and the governor will deliver this outline of, of what his his budget for the year, but also more than just his budget, it'll be sort of his political manifesto. What what do I want to accomplish as governor? And But it's all in the context of, of the Pennsylvania budget, which is going to be due by June 30th. And if you look at the situation that, that we're facing, at, at first glance, Pennsylvania might appear to be in relatively good fiscal health. We're able to increase the rainy day fund in the last couple of sessions. Uh, the budgets have balanced out and and. To, from that perspective, yes, it looks okay. 
But the problem is the reason they've balanced out is because of the influx of federal money yep. under the COVID situation. And then the um, the FMAP, there's a, there's a Medicaid reimbursement that the states were getting help from D.C. in a very generous way that's that's just going to disappear. Right. And so in order for that situation to remain where we are not operating at a deficit and we are keeping the growth of spending at a reasonable level that, that can be sustained by the existing tax structure and there isn't need for, for new revenue sources, uh, we've got to be very careful with, with the spending. And it's going to be the decisions made this in this next budget cycle and the following one that will define what happens two and three years out when if things don't go well, they'll be needing to do a, a tax increase. Well, and, you know, that's that's really the central point, Stephen. That's something I think that's not commonly understood. Pennsylvania has um, a structural deficit, which means that our mandatory spending um, is increasing at a rate faster than the overall growth of the economy and the tax revenues that, that are generated by that. Um, in large measure, that's because of Pennsylvania's demographic crisis. That we have, um, you know, a disproportionately large, uh, you know, number of, of senior citizens proportionally, and of course that those, you know, folks have earned, uh, you know, benefits and services that that of course the Commonwealth has to deliver to them. So um, this again, this gets back to Pennsylvania's overall economic competitiveness, that the younger folks, they go where the jobs are. What can we do in terms of the state competitiveness differential to make Pennsylvania the kind of place where businesses want to go to locate, invest, and hire, and operate, and expand, and so on and so forth? Because until and unless we, we fix that, we're not going to fix this larger demographic crisis where we don't have enough people in their productive years, um, you know, working and, and paying taxes to, you know, to meet those responsibilities for Pennsylvania's senior citizens. I think that's that's absolutely true, of course. And I think we'll see some indication of where the governor intends to go with that um, by the, in this budget address, if he gives us some indication of how he what solutions he has to make Pennsylvania more uh, business friendly, more friendly for businesses, because we know, based on other states' um, data and um, what we've discussed many times on this show, is if you make the business climate more attractive in the state, you will grow jobs, you will attract people to the state, um, and you will um, raise tax revenue. Yeah. We know that's true. So that ultimately is the solution to, um, like you said, the ongoing deficit that we're, we're going to be encountering in the future is to grow the economy. So bring businesses to the state and grow the economy. So what are some things that we might see in the governor's um, uh, address next week that would indicate that he understands that and is moving toward that. Maybe some uh, continued business tax cuts, like the corporate net income tax yeah. cut. And, and again, a, an important point to clarify, we're talking about rates. We're talking about reducing rates yes. to optimize growth so that the economy grows, so that increases to the treasury increase. We want our employers to be paying more money in taxes, not from higher rates, but because the economy is expanding. The economy grows, that's They're right. They're so successful. Yes, yes, exactly. And that's yes. exactly what happened uh, with the federal um, 
corporate uh, tax cuts. In the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, um, the economy grew, and the federal government is now collecting a lot more taxes than it was before because the economy grew. That's what we want to see happen in yes. Pennsylvania. The rates come down, the economy will grow. Yes. So um, the governor is on record supporting continued um, corporate net income tax reductions. So um, if he comes forward with a proposal to do that, we'll see that as an indication that he intends to move to make Pennsylvania more business friendly and wants to grow the economy here in the state. Yeah, and I do think that there are opportunities uh, things that the governor campaigned on um, that, you know, again, that, that mark him as a, uh, you know, potentially as a as a reasonable uh, person who's compare, who's concerned about how well the economy is performing, obviously continuing um, phase down of that very dangerously high uh, CNI rate is one thing. He's also said some encouraging things about um, the need for uh, for for Votech and job training right, and workforce exactly. development. I'm I'm hopeful that there'll be um, potential for progress, um, you know, in that area. And um, you know, and he's also said some positive things about needing to improve the permitting process yeah. and trying to streamline streamline regulations. And and uh, he's and, made some executive orders along those lines and, already. So, so we'll, yeah, we'll see how far it goes. But um, again, it's a it's a tumultuous time uh, in the state capitol. And uh, and and dear listeners, please believe us when we're we're just trying to keep up so we do the best we can we report back to you and um and as ever thanks for taking the time to listen to uh listen to to us we're down to the the last of our time here so we'll go ahead and wrap up steve where can people go to learn more about you and your organization and the things that you do they can visit us on the web at commonwealthfoundation.org. Okay. And Rebecca, where can people find out more about you? They can find the Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association at pmta.org. Outstanding. And as ever, you can find me online at pamanufacturers.org and on the Pennsylvania Cable Network Sunday mornings at 8.30 with PMA Perspective. So once more from me and Steve and Rebecca, thanks so much for listening. And we will catch you next time on Capital Watch. And now, a town hall commentary from Loman Henry. Thank you, David. Since the start of the new legislative session at the beginning of the year, Pennsylvania's House of Representatives has been, to be charitable, dysfunctional. To be accurate, it has been a dumpster fire. The elections last November yielded a one-seat majority for Democrats who, like the dog which caught a car, didn't quite know what to do with it. The slimness of their majority has created a quandary for House Democrats, which has pitted their rhetoric and professed principles against their lust for power. This has played out in two issue areas. The opening of a window for survivors of child sexual abuse to sue, and the allegations of sexual harassment leveled against one of their own members. Democrats pontificate about enacting a state constitutional amendment opening a window to allow victims of child sexual abuse to retroactively sue their abuser. The abhorrence of child sexual abuse is, of course, universal. So legislative Democrats have cloaked the issue in high-minded moral terms, portraying anyone who raises questions about the unintended consequences of such an amendment as somehow morally deficient. 
Despite those concerns, Republicans in the state Senate made passage of the amendment their top priority. As one of its first orders of business, the Senate passed legislation that would have placed it on the May ballot for voter approval. That is where House Democrats' moral superiority and adherence to principle was trumped by their political agenda. Senate Republicans included two other amendments in the legislation that reflected their priorities, an amendment requiring photo voter identification and an amendment that would rein in regulatory overreach. Despite polls which show overwhelming public support for photo voter ID, the electoral safeguard is strongly opposed by Democrats who apparently see some sort of advantage in its absence. Rather than concur with the Senate bill, House Democrats passed a separate measure that did not include the other two amendments. Thus, House Democrats this very day could have what they have been morally expounding on for years, a constitutional amendment opening a window for the victims of child sexual abuse to sue, ready to go to the voters for approval. Instead, the amendment is likely to die solely because House Democrats placed politics above principle. Senate Republicans are unlikely to revisit the issue because they say, correctly, they have already addressed it. We often hear platitudes about the need for lawmakers to compromise and for the two parties to come together to get things done. That is what Senate Republicans did, gave Democrats their priority, but also included Republican priorities. Such is the essence of compromise. Each side gets something they want and something they don't. Having thus sold out the victims, Democrats have once again taken to their podiums to blame Republicans. The fact is, they still have the Senate-passed bill before them, and if they truly wanted the amendment, they would pass it forthwith. And that would require placing principle above politics, and therefore is unlikely to happen. Another area where House Democrats morally remonstrate is on the issue of sexual harassment. They claim it is one of their top concerns until it involves one of their own. Recently, a labor union lobbyist accused a Democratic member of the State House of harassment. Keep in mind, the brave accuser works for a labor union, not some business or conservative group. That gives her allegations instant credibility. In the hashtag MeToo era, she must be immediately believed and the accuser canceled. Like in an episode of the television series Cheers, everybody knows his name, but it has not yet been made public. We do know he is a Democrat, and with a one-seat majority, House Democrats can ill afford to force his resignation. Were he a Republican, you can bet the wayward lawmaker would be kicked out onto State Street in a flash. Once again, House Democrats have placed their lust for power above their principles. Republicans have pressured Democrats to take action against the offending member, but Democrats have stonewalled the issue, taking no official action to even investigate the abuse charges. If House Democrats truly believed their own rhetoric and professed moral concerns, they would immediately do two things. Pass Senate Bill 1, which would send the constitutional amendment for child sex abuse survivors to voters for approval and expel or at least suspend the member who stands credibly accused of sexual harassment. To do neither would be to further victimize the victims. With a town hall commentary, I'm Loman Henry.
If you miss hearing Lincoln Radio Journal on your favorite radio station, audio of our complete program is available on our websites, lincolnradiojournal.com and lincolninstitute.org. And Florida Governor Ron DeSantis will be the special guest speaker at this year's Pennsylvania Leadership Conference, which is the premier annual gathering of grassroots conservatives every year here in the Keystone State. This year's Pennsylvania Leadership Conference will be held March 30th through April 1st at the Penn Harris Hotel in Camp Hill. In addition to Governor DeSantis, speakers include Kellyanne Conway as the featured dinner speaker. She will be joined by Guy Benson of Fox News and John Gizzi of Newsmax as headline speakers. There will be workshops, seminars, panels, and additional speakers. Complete information and a preliminary agenda and registration for the 2023 Pennsylvania Leadership Conference can be found at paleadershipconference.org. That's paleadershipconference.org. The Lincoln Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, including the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association, the Allegheny Foundation of Pittsburgh, and the Houston Foundation of Coatesville, all of whom have helped to underwrite the costs of this program. Lincoln Radio Journal is a trademark of the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. From the Lincoln Broadcast Center in Harrisburg, I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to Pennsylvania's most widely broadcast public affairs radio program, Lincoln Radio Journal, plug into the pulse of Pennsylvania.